Geological usually publishes on a weekly basis, but with the spread of the coronavirus into the United States and the current uncertainty around infection rates due to lack of testing, we're bringing you extra episodes that we hope you'll find helpful as we navigate ourselves through this challenging time. This is a short conversation with Craig Mitchell in which we discuss the current COVID-19 situation as it's unfolding here at the beginning of March in 2020. Not surprisingly, the Chinese medicine internet has been lit up with discussions about what kind of pathogen we're dealing with, herbs that are being used in China, and what plans practitioners are making here in the West as it looks like it might be our turn to use the methods that have come down to us over the centuries in service of dealing with this modern epidemic. A big takeaway that I want to mention up front, because I think it's worth repeating, is that we're dealing with a highly contagious pathogen. And while we might be eager to do our part to help, it's vitally important to ensure that we're not inadvertently helping to spread the disease. A keen eye and an abundance of caution in keeping our clinics clean and disinfected is essential. We all know that it's better to prevent disease than to have to cure it. If you're not up on the latest sanitation measures and guidelines, it's best to educate yourself and start now making sure that your clinic is safe for your patients, employees, and for yourself. Craig Mitchell, welcome to Geological. Thank you for having me, Michael. We were talking earlier today about this COVID-19 situation. It's of course, all over the news, it's all over the interwebs. Uh, partly, we were talking today because so many acupuncturists are receiving emails, all different kinds of notification. There's protocols, there's use this formula, there's go buy a boatload of you ping fong san. And uh, I wanted to talk to you because I've been kind of scratching my head and going, wait a minute, are we doing Chinese medicine out here? Maybe not. Yeah, I think we are in a unique situation and it's one that i think we have to as a community think quite carefully about we do i think need to look at patients that we're seeing as we always do which is through the lens of the diagnostic systems of chinese medicine and that means using differential diagnosis and that means that while any particular given protocol or suggestion that might be coming out of China or for or from anywhere else for that matter, that we need to think carefully about that from the perspective of the actual patient that we might be seeing at a given moment in time, just as we would with anything. Of course. I, you know, we both had a chance to experience SARS a bit. I was living there. You were actually coming through at various points and going to school. Um, you were doing your PhD at that point. And I remember when it when SARS really first started to happen, the Bonline gun was like gone from the pharmacies because people were making this assumption, oh, this is a viral thing. We're going to use this antiviral herb. And it was so surprising to me. Here I am. I'm studying in China. It's like, great, I'm going to get the real Chinese medicine. And, and yet people were using the Chinese herbs as if it was a Western medicinal. It was very confusing to me at that moment. Yes, I agree. And frankly, I don't, I don't think that that approach during that situation was particularly effective. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those situations, Michael, as you, as you know, right? Uh, what is that saying? Even a blind squirrel occasionally finds a nut. So was there someone that that helped? Yeah, probably. 
right? Probably there was. But I think you and I have both been practicing Chinese medicine for a long time now. And I think, you know, for every patient who comes in and is complaining of uh, a fever and a sore throat, for every patient that we've found that yin chao san was effective for that patient, there are a whole handful of patients where it turns out that we needed something quite different than that. Uh, maybe we needed Mashing Shurgantong. Maybe we needed, as you and I talked about earlier today, maybe there was a damp component in the pro in the patient's situation, and we needed Sanrentong, which is one of the formulas that I've heard some people talking about using for this COVID-19 outbreak. But the bottom line is, if you don't actually assess the patient and you don't see what's going on with them, none of these formulas are necessarily going to be helpful for anything. Right. You know, I, I remember when I was in Chinese medicine school and, you know, of course, one of the first formulas you learn about is you ping fang san. It's like, oh, this is really helpful for, I'm using air quotes, your immune system. Right. And, and I've always had weak lungs and I thought, okay, cool. I'm going to start taking this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I took it for a couple of weeks and I woke up one night in the middle of the night freaking out because I thought my house was on fire. <laughs> I was I was smelling like the smell of smoke. And it wasn't because my house was on fire. Actually, I was on fire. I'm already kind of a dry guy. Mm. And that stuff really dried me out. I, I For a number of days after that, I, it's like I smelled smoke everywhere I went. I, I finally realized, wait a minute, maybe this is not the right thing for me. That's amazing. Yeah, it was it was one of those moments where I began to realize there's stuff that we read in the books, there's things that we hear from our teachers, there's things that we say to each other, and we go, yes, of course, that's true. And yet, that really woke me up to, depends on the person, depends on their physiology, depends on where they're strong, where they're weak. I'm a dry guy. I used a formula that dried me out. Right. I literally set myself on fire. Well, the the best practitioners with whom I've had the opportunity to work, whether it's here or in, in Asia, they are people who are able to think flexibly about situations. And they and they are people who are I think they go into the treatment room open to being surprised by what they are going to find. Mm-hmm. So they don't go in with some kind of a predisposition. They don't go in with some idea about, oh, you know, this patient has whatever the condition is you want to talk about. Oh, they have, they have asthma or they have irritable bowel syndrome or they have COVID-19. And I, I already know what that's going to be based on the Western diagnostic assessment of that. It, that's not coming through the lens of Chinese medicine. If our experience is any example, our treatments will not be as effective if we use that strategy to make decisions about our patients. For me, one of the joys and one of the difficult things about Chinese medicine is to cultivate that sense of being able to walk into the treatment room a little bit empty, a little bit empty, a little bit open to what's actually here. Agreed. And... I mean, for me, I find that to be part of the joy of practice, but it, but there's times I walk in and there's still that sense 20 years later of, oh my God, what do I do with this? Hmm. And, and, and to somehow learn to get friendly with that. Yes. Well, and I think also, Michael, I want to bring up one other, one other point that you and I touched on when we initially spoke today. 
if we ask the question in a in a vacuum, if we say, well, is Chinese medicine able to effectively treat COVID-19? That is one question, and maybe that's an interesting question. I also think, however, that as a community, we also have to think a little bit about what we're doing and whether or not we're being responsible to our, our own community and to the other patients with whom we interact. We have talked about the fact that there is a huge amount of uncertainty out there still about the transmission of COVID-19, about the incubation phase of COVID-19, about the uh, mortality rate associated with it, the severity of the presentations. And so I think that as a community, well, let me just say for, for a moment. So as you know, Michael, I am involved in running the Seattle Institute of East Asian Medicine. It just so happens that King County, where, where, the, where our school is located, is one of the first places in the United States to get a significant number of cases of COVID-19. And so we have kind of been, as a school and in our clinic, trying to determine what is the appropriate response to this. And while we are keeping our clinic open for the time being, we are actually asking both our students, staff, faculty, as well as our patients who have active respiratory symptoms not to come in. So people, certainly if they have a fever, but even if they have an acute onset upper respiratory situation, we are asking them not to come in. And the rationale for that, and I know this may be, this may not be what some people in our community want to hear, but the rationale that we have applied is that it is difficult to know what the trajectory of this illness is going to be. And we don't have the ability, at least in our clinic, we don't have the ability to isolate people. Our clinic and our school are all mixed together. Everybody is literally, you know, in the same rooms, crossing in the hallway, using the same bathrooms. And what we do know about COVID-19 is that it's not only transmissible through respiratory droplets, but it, it appears to have a significant longevity even when it's on a surface. And so we feel that we have a responsibility to the other patients in our community to take some reasonable steps to ensure that we are not unintentionally um, exposing people to this illness in a way that would not be responsible. And whether or not at some point in the future, you know, we may end up being some of the frontline people who are trying to get a handle on this kind of a viral infection, given the fact that Western medicine doesn't have a lot of great tools for this. And while I understand and appreciate that, I also want, want to show an, what they call an abundance of caution with regards to how we're doing that right now. Well, this kind of gets back to do no harm. Exactly. And, and this is a contagious pathogen. Clearly, it's a contagious pathogen. I mean, it's, it's spread around the world very quickly, much quicker than SARS did. Yes. You know, the other piece is we didn't have the same social networking, cell phones, deep interconnectedness back in the early part of the century that we do now. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's, sometimes it's hard to know how much of it is, this is a virulent pathogen, how much of it is, well, our social fabric is really different now than it was 15, 20 years ago. Absolutely. You know, that's, I mean, that's, that, that's a whole other question. I don't know if it's part of what we need to get into today, but it's, it does point to the deep uncertainty that we have. And so doing anything that we can to make sure that we're not spreading this. Right would be really, really helpful. I understand we all want to help. I was talking with my buddy Toby Daly the other day. We were talking about acupuncture and you know how we might help, and we we're both talking about herbs as well. And we we're both thinking, you know, we could do some kind of remote thing where you're talking to people, prescribe them some herbs, drop them in a place. You guys never touch each other. It might not be a bad idea. I mean, just because we don't want to infect other people. We don't want ourselves infected. I mean, we're not going to be much good if we're sick. Well, and one of the difficulties with this, and and frankly, it's one of the things that's given us great pause about even keeping our clinic open at this point, is that people can be infectious before they're symptomatic. They don't even know yet. And so, you know, we have gone through, um, I have to give a little shout out to, to the academic dean in our program, Kathy Taramina, who spearheaded this major effort over the last week, we have disinfected the entire school. We wiped down every surface. We got rid of a huge amount of pillows and towels and things that we couldn't clean properly. And we've just made it as clean a site as we can possibly make. And we're still uneasy about staying open and and having patients come through who we don't know what their infectious state is. And so I do think that being, I don't know, maybe I'm getting old, Michael, but I I feel like a little bit of a conservative approach here seems appropriate under these circumstances. I I think abundant caution is not a bad stance to take. Where are you taking your leads from? Where are there, are you going with CDC guidelines? Are you getting something from uh, King County? Where, where do you get your leads for deciding? Do, I, do we stay open? Do we stay closed? What kind of precautions do we take? Are you doing any kind of record keeping? What are you, what are you doing there? That's, that's a great question. So we have been monitoring CDC communications for sure. We have a fantastic public health department here in King County. And they have, I mean, there is a state of emergency in Washington state declared by the governor. So there's a lot of resources coming out, both written resources, but also the in the last couple of days, the University of Washington has just gotten fully set up to be able to do testing for COVID-19. And so I think we're all expecting to see a significant increase in the number of tested patients, which I think will be potentially very helpful in terms of understanding the spread. We are also, we often do things based on the decision-making process that the Seattle public schools use. And right now, King County Public Health is encouraging schools to stay open. They're encouraging schools to take these kinds of precautions in terms of anybody with respiratory symptoms not come in, people minimizing uh, unnecessary physical contact, limiting the number of large group settings, and, and being super careful about hand washing and, and hand hygiene generally. And so we, we're looking to these organizations to help us in our decision-making process. We also do, we have instituted something which we haven't um, used before, which is basically we keep a log at our front desk of everybody who comes into our facility. 
and we have a conversation with them about travel and about any respiratory symptoms that they've had. And that's that's partially to potentially screen somebody who's not thinking about what some potential exposure might be that they've had. And it's also to make sure that if we were to be in a situation where there was an exposure on campus, that we would be able to contact people who we think you know, might have been exposed to that person. You could catch the various vectors if they happen to show up. Exactly. That seems really prudent, especially if you're a school or, or a large operation of some sort. Right. It makes a lot of sense. Just, I mean, it's like public health 101 in a way, now that you mention it. Yeah. I mean, the other, the other question and I, that I initially I thought you were, when you were asking me, where are we looking for, for input about this? My initial thought was, what texts, what classical texts are we looking at? I wanted to get to that as well, because, you know, there's some stuff coming out of China that we can read and think about. I mean, I've seen some of this stuff that's been emailed. And, you know, one way of looking at it is, oh, here's the herbs I should use. And then, but I look at it and I go, huh, well, what are they seeing? What are they thinking? Right. Use it as kind of a case study, like a thought experiment to kind of sharpen up the saw, so to speak, for thinking about differential diagnosis. So those can be useful. But yeah, what about some of the more classical materials? Well, I think from what I understand, I mean, one of my, one of my teachers here in Seattle who is Chinese and who has a lot of friends and family who are, who are in China, he's been in practice the better part of, I guess, 50 years or a little bit more. And his take on this, you know, this is only one person, but it's based on his extensive experience and information that he's getting from China is that probably a warm disease strategy, um, something from the Wenbing tradition might end up being the most effective thing, um, in part because it seems as though many of these kinds of conditions have a, a damp heat type component to them or damp warmth in the, in the kind of parlance of warm disease theory. And so those kinds of conditions arguably might be more effectively treated with, with, uh, with formulas from, from the Wenbing tradition, like Sanren Tang I mentioned earlier, or uh, Ho Po Xialing Tang, or one of those, which are, those are in that damp warmth kind of framework. I have heard about people using other things, some, some things from the Shanghan Lun as well. I, I, I imagine that that's quite possible, that those formulas could also be effective. But again, you know, as you, as you and I keep talking about when we discuss this, it's all, those are all possible. They're all fair game. And until you're actually sitting down with a patient and doing a careful analysis of their signs and symptoms, how old are they? What was their state of health before they got sick? Where were they exposed? What's their living environment? What is their current, what are their current signs and symptoms? And then doing the differential diagnosis. That's such an amazing strength of Chinese medicine. In a way, Michael, I think to me, this really points out that the real value of our medicine, aside from its efficacy in treating complex diseases, is lies in differential diagnosis. And so if you're giving up your differential diagnosis and just choosing a formula because someone from China said that you should use that, that seems really unfortunate. And like you're not serving your patients as well as you could under other circumstances. You mentioned Sanrentang. And this is kind of an, I mean, 
you don't hear about Sandra and Tong that often, at least I don't. And I know that I had a conversation with Jin Zhao a little while back, and, and he's been using the, uh, uh, oh God, bond, uh, the other formula that you mentioned, the name just- Popo Xiaoling Tong? That's it, yeah. Yeah, he's he, he's quite keen on that because as he's been seeing this, at least in Wuhan, where it's cold and it's damp and there's toxin, you need that like super aromatic stuff to disperse. Exactly. So, and of course, if, if this illness shows up in a place like Arizona, that might look different, right? Or Southern California. Again, we, you know, we need to see how does this manifest in a certain person in a certain place. That being said, could you talk to us a little bit about Sanrentang for, for those who may not be familiar with it? I think that Sanrentang and Hoapoxialingtang are formulas that one of the things that's interesting about them is that they can both be used for externally contracted illnesses, but they can also be used for damp heat type conditions that are internal as well. And so the difference between the two formulas, and everybody can can look them up in the in the formulary, um, has to do with the relative proportion of dampness to heat in the in the different patterns, right? So that's one of the key differentials between those two formulas. But essentially, what you have in a formula like Sanrentang is you're using substances that are, as you mentioned, that are aromatic, that are opening, that clear away dampness. And that are both opening the upper burner, the lungs, making sure that the lung chi is flowing smoothly, using something that's aromatic and dampness dispelling for the middle burner to make sure that the transformation of dampness is happening properly in the middle burner. And then also using substances that have a diuretic quality that are helping to clear dampness through the urinary system as well. So, you know, Sanrentang is one of these interesting formulas that it works really by stimulating the metabolic pathways in the body that transform fluids. And that, so that means lung, spleen, kidney, urinary bladder in this case. And so I think one of the things that sometimes makes that formula hard to understand is that it's not a particularly strong heat clearing formula, but nonetheless, it is able to treat conditions of damp heat or damp warmth by stimulating the normal movement of fluids and, and having the heat exit the body through the urinary system. And it sounds like because it is so strongly dealing with the fluids, it's like the heat goes out with the fluids. It's got nothing to hold on to. Absolutely. Yeah. This, this is not a formula that I know very well. I, I appreciate your explanation of it. The, the main thing I remember about Sanrentang, this is an article that I read by Dan Bensky, like, many, many years ago. And he, and he talked about this very thing. In fact, he really enjoyed using it for a number of different things. I'm going to have to go dig that article out and, and like go bone up on it since we're having this conversation. Uh, but the main thing that I remember is the way that it did work the fluid metabolism through the three different burners. Yes. And, and, and that's always been the thing in the back of my mind about that. But honestly, I have not really used that formula much in my practice, hardly ever. And I hope that I do not have an opportunity to do so, but I, I'm going to go bone up on this one because it might be really helpful in this situation, given circumstances. I also hope, though, that you you don't need to wait for an externally contracted illness to use it. That's one of the powerful things about, you know, the formulas from the Shanghan Lun and from the, from the warm disease tradition 
many of these formulas that were originally used and can still be used for externally contracted illnesses oftentimes also are very effective for things that are internally generated. Mm -hmm. And so Sanrentan can be quite useful even if you're not thinking about using it for COVID-19 of course, uh, or some other externally contracted illness. Right. We, yeah. If we see a situation where someone's got dampness in all three burners there, and maybe especially if they're in a damp environment, that could be really helpful for their air quotes here, arthritis or digestive issues. I mean, this is one of the beauties, of course, of, of Chinese medicine, one of the reasons I love it to pieces. And it drives me crazy at the same time is that, you know, this one formula, you can use it in these varied ways, but it really takes that understanding of what are we looking at and what's the dynamic that's involved. Right. And again, right. It, it goes back to, are you doing good differential diagnosis? Which is hard. It is hard. And I found for myself, I have to be willing to be wrong a lot, you know, to really take a stance. This is what I see. This is what I'm going to treat and be willing to deal with it if it doesn't go the right way and hopefully learn something from it. And you know, one thing, Michael, I, I, I think I since we're talking about formulas and, and, you know, you mentioned to me earlier that you saw something about maybe a suggestion of using yin chow san um, for this situation or having people stock up on that or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm certainly not a warm disease scholar, but in this pattern from, you know, I listened to some of the work that Jean Zhao has done and I, in conversations with uh, Ma Shochun, who's a doctor here in, in, uh, in Seattle, this idea of there being a damp component in these patterns seems to be fairly consistent. And if that is in fact the case, then I think the use of yin chao san could potentially be quite problematic, actually. So I don't want to say it's good or it's bad. What I want to say is the idea that you would use it reflexively without actually looking at a patient's tongue, without actually hearing about their symptoms, without actually doing the differential diagnosis that we, that we do, that's not a good idea. And it doesn't matter whether a formula is yin chao san or san ren tong or anything else. It's just not a good idea. I, I think that's a really helpful point. It's, it's so easy to like read something and go, oh, this person used it and it was helpful. That means I can. It means it means maybe I can. If you understand the dynamic, you understand the the mechanism. Well, good luck to you out there. Um, maybe we'll come back at some point if we need to for updates uh, as as things evolve here. I've got a feeling it's our turn at bat. You know, throughout history, Chinese doctors have had to confront these sorts of epidemic situations or pandemic perhaps situations. And uh, it's fun reading the history and thinking about it. But man, I'm telling you, I feel like I'm up here at home plate now and my knees are a little bit wobbly. Yeah, I hear you, Michael. And I hope that, frankly, I hope it doesn't come to that. Because if we really end up on the front lines, it'll mean that there's been a complete breakdown of the mainstream medical system. And I can't see how that would be good for any of us, frankly. Agreed. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate you doing this and trying to get some information out into the community and uh, look forward to talking to you the next time. 